Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Judd Devermont. I am the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. This is a podcast where we talk politics and challenge paradigms. On deck today, Eritrea has been accused of committing grave human rights abuses in Ethiopia. What pressure points exist to stop these gruesome crimes? And Rwanda last year detained regime opponent Paul Rusesa Begina. Why does the Rwandan government pull out all the stops to silence its opposition? Plus, we discuss how certain East and Central African governments use their history and economic and development performance to insulate themselves from international critique. So whether you have a history with the continent or you're a newcomer, we want to get you into Africa. Eritrean troops have been accused of killing hundreds of unarmed civilians in Ethiopia's Tigray region. What will it take to stop these serious human rights abuses? Joining me to discuss Eritrea and other topics are Adete Akwe, Deputy Director for Advocacy and Government Relations for Amnesty International USA, Ida Sawyer, Deputy Director of Human Rights Watch's Africa Division, and Michaela Rong, author of the new book, Do Not Disturb, the story of a political murder and an African regime gone bad. When fighting broke out between the Ethiopian government and the TPLF, the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front, in November 2020, Eritrean troops quickly joined the fray to support the Ethiopian forces and to defeat their longtime Tigrayan rivals. And just as swiftly, reports streamed out of the region of human rights abuses committed by all sides. But the Eritrean role has been singled out for its viciousness, especially for attacks in the historic town of Aksum. Now, Eritrean troops fighting in Ethiopia's Tigray state systematically killed hundreds of unarmed civilians in the northern city of Aksum on the 28th and the 29th of November 2020. An Amnesty International report reveals that troops opened fire in the streets and conducted house-to-house raids in a massacre that may amount to a crime against humanity. Adite, I think Amnesty was one of the first to report on some of these abuses. Uh, you said in February that they were responsible for the massacres of hundreds of Axum civilians, and that could possibly amount to crimes against humanity. Can you tell us a little bit more about what your team uncovered? Sure. The events that we're talking about happened in November of 2020, between the 19th and the 29th, when Eritrean troops that were working in coordination with the Ethiopian Defense Forces took over the town of Aksum uh, from the control of the TPLF forces. What we were able to do in interviews with survivors and also in using satellite research was basically to confirm that first, the Ethiopian and Eritrean forces shelled the city of Aksum indiscriminately, which of course caused widespread loss of life and damage to property and infrastructure, and that after the shelling was completed, the troops moved in and over approximately a 24-hour period, deliberately shot civilians in the streets. They carried out systematic house-to-house searches. They extrajudicially executed men and boys. And this was allegedly in retaliation for an effort by the men of Axum to sort of try and retake uh, a strategic mountain that uh, overlooks the city. And the military initiative that we're talking about involved local militiamen and some residents who were using sticks and stones. And of course, they were repulsed and defeated by the Eritrean forces. And that led then to this um, deliberate massacre and targeting of 
literally all male population in the city. The Ethiopian government, of course, initially denied that it had happened. We have not received any kind of response to date from the Eritreans about not only what happened in Aksum, but of course, the other abuses that they're linked to in this conflict in Tigray. And um, and this is one of the, the core events that we believe has to be investigated by an independent international commission of inquiry. Ida, Human Rights Watch has reached a similar conclusion about Eritrean culpability, uh, particularly in Axum. But I, I want to give you an opportunity to add anything to Adite's account. But then maybe we should look at this more broadly and put it in perspective. Do you see the Eritrean role in, in these atrocities as comparable to some of the other actors, TPLF, the Ethiopian government, the ethnic militias? Is there something that stands out in its scope, in the violations, in the callousness? How do you sort of rack and stack what is just an awful situation uh, in this region? Thanks, Judd. I think Adote has given a really good overview, and our findings are very much in line with Amnesty's research on the Axel Massacre. I just want to highlight what we documented in that week leading up to the sort of 24-hour killing spree from November 28th to 29th. And this is after the joint Ethiopian and Eritrean forces shelled the town. They then came in and started extrajudicial killings even a week before the big massacre happened. And then we documented really widespread pillaging by both Ethiopian and Eritrean forces. They even attacked St. Mary's Hospital, shot and killed patients there, and then looted critical hospital equipment and supplies. And this is really what provoked just such anger and that led to the uh, attack that Adote described on the hill with the Eritrean base. And then that prompted this massive, deliberate killing spree. I think the heinous killings during this massacre and the other abuses we've documented by Eritrean forces really reveal a complete disregard for human life. And in addition to Axum, we've documented numerous other massacres and indiscriminate killings sexual violence against women and girls, large-scale pillaging, destruction of public infrastructure, including hospitals, schools, and refugee camps, as well as private property, farms, and homes. But I think it's important to note that the Eritrean forces have often been operating alongside Ethiopian government troops, as well as allied forces from the Ahara region. And these other forces have often been just as abusive. In Axum, most of the killings appear to have been carried out by Eritrean forces during the 24-hour massacre, with Ethiopian troops looking on and doing nothing to stop the killings. But we've documented many other incidents where Ethiopian troops have been responsible for massacres and indiscriminate killings of civilians. And you know, one thing that I would say stands out in our research, what we hear again and again, is this deep sense of betrayal that Tigrayans feel towards the federal government and the Ethiopian forces meant to protect them. Something else that has stood out is just the indignity, the cruel way that the dead are treated. We saw this when over a dozen young men were executed on video by soldiers in Ethiopian army uniforms in Maberudego, and then the bodies were thrown from a clifftop. And this is an example where the victims were initially rounded up by both Eritrean and Ethiopian forces and taken to a joint military base before being executed. So it shows how the forces have really been cooperating closely in very violent and abusive operations. And another thing that I think is really important to highlight is how the Eritrean army is largely made up of forced conscripts who are part of the country's highly abusive national service system. 
And in Eritrea, secondary school students are forced to finish their studies at this notorious Sawa military camp where they undergo military training and then many are sent into military service indefinitely. And this is just one aspect of the highly repressive system that President Isaias has built in his one-man dictatorship. And I think this makes it all the more important to focus accountability efforts really on command responsibility and those top officials most responsible, not only for the heinous crimes committed during the ongoing conflict in Tigray, but also the widespread abuses against and repression of the Eritrean people. It's really important, Ida, and I'm really glad that you pointed out, I may have set you up to make sure that we talked about what the Eritreans do in context of what the Ethiopians are doing and the militias and, you know, the TPLF. There's just a tremendous amount of brutality happening from all sides. And I wanted to make sure that we had that in the episode. But this focus is on on Eritrea. Michaela, since you wrote a book on uh, Eritrea, and it's a great, helpful retracing of the history of the state, the story of Isaiah Afawerki, then I just thought this was a great opportunity as you hear Ida and Adote kind of walk through what's happened. Does it comport with your understanding of Isaiah, his ambitions, his relationship with Tia PLF? I think it's um, been really shocking to anyone like myself who has been to Eritrea repeatedly and done a lot of research on the country to see what's been happening since November and the vindictiveness and the sheer violence of what the Eritreans are subjecting the people of Tigray to. And it's all the more shocking because, of course, when you go to Eritrea and spend some time in the highlands, uh, as Mara, the capital, is in the highlands, you realise how interlinked the communities of Tigray, northern Tigray and Eritrea, the highlands communities are. I mean, they will tell you, you know, we're brothers, we're cousins, we go to each other's weddings, we go to each other's festivals. But there's also always been this streak of real rivalry between the Tigray People's Liberation Front and the EPLF of Eritrea. You know, they say revenge is a dish best eaten cold. And this is a very, very cold dish of revenge that we are seeing. Because um, in the 1980s, there were always rivalries between the TPLF and the EPLF over strategy. There were moments where each movement felt that the other had sold them out, been the cause of unnecessary deaths. Then uh, when the two stormed together and overturned Mengistu and seized control of Addis Ababa, there were ideological differences between how each one of them saw the future. And then what we saw was the two movements going to war in 1998 over the border. Effectively, Ethiopia had won the war But when they then went to arbitration, which is what the international community encouraged them to do, the Boundary Commission found that Badme, uh, in particular, had always been Eritrean. So uh, you had a Boundary Commission announce the ruling, retraced the border, said this is where the border lies, and then Ethiopia ignored it. And that was the moment where the international community, in my view, should have stepped in and obliged Ethiopia, influenced it, pressurized it, cajoled it into marking that border. Instead, the international community was very aware that um, Ethiopia was the more important, the bigger country, the strategic partner that really mattered, and that Eritrea was increasingly seeming to be a more and more inward-looking, hardline state, which was obsessed with sort of doing military training. And uh, Melisanawi is a charming leader, and Isaias Afawerki is not. So there was a a tendency in the international community to let that ride. And 
Since that border ruling was never enforced, I think Eritrea just kind of shrugged its shoulders and walked away and said, OK, fine, you know, we don't care. We'll do our own thing. We're going to have very limited interactions with the outside world and um, became widely regarded as a pariah state. And of course, when Meles died and Abiy Ahmed became the new prime minister of Ethiopia, and then he ends up sort of falling out with the TPLF, Isaias has this moment where he can form this great pact with Abiy, and now is his closest partner in this war. And this has been the moment to sort of show the TPLF who is boss, that he is the kingmaker. He's only got a tiny little craggy Rocky Mountain state. He's got a, an economy of no importance whatsoever, but he gets to call the shots because Abiy needs him to fight this war and to win it. And so I think Isaias is sort of reveling in this moment. And that's why you see this incredibly ruthless and vindictive campaign, because he's not only trying to sort of destroy the TPLF, he's trying to subjugate and cow that whole Tigray region so it will never represent any kind of challenge economically, strategically, diplomatically to uh, Eritrea. So in 1998, you have these two macho personalities pitted against each other, fought a, a terrible, destructive war, and never were able to sort of reach any sort of resolution over, over Bodmade despite international court decisions. Now we have two macho personalities, Abi and Isaiah, aligned together. And no amount so far of international condemnation has changed their calculus. We've seen U.S. diplomats call for the withdrawal of Eritrea from Ethiopia. They recently imposed visa sanctions. We don't know on who, but on Eritreans, as well as Ethiopian government officials and former government officials. The EU says they're going to impose some sanctions as well. And, you know, Ida, you and Adote have talked about accountability. But is there more that needs to happen, given the challenges of trying to change the behavior of Isaiah and Abi's been in power only since 2018, but we also know that he is fairly recalcitrant himself. What do you recommend in terms of both accountability, but just stopping the, the violence? Michaela actually outlined the, the real challenge, which is the mindsets of uh, both Abi and uh, Isaiah. And recently imposed U.S. sanctions are probably an important first step because the European Union was always, always waiting for actions from Washington before they did anything. This was even when Ethiopia was tearing itself apart before uh, Halimerim stepped down and Abi came to power. The fact that Washington is engaged and is doing something and that there is alignment between the executive branch and Congress is an important first step. But Washington is going to have to bring its A-game to pull the African Union to do much more than it has done. And we all know that that's going to be a challenge because it's based in Addis. But the African Union itself has to move away from blind endorsement and continuing loyalty to the Abiy administration's record. And this is why this issue of accountability is so important because the facts, I think, are the most powerful weapon that we can use in trying to force change from the Ethiopian side of this alliance. The Eritrean side may be a little bit more problematic. And that's why the investigation, the Commission of Inquiry that both Human Rights Watch and Amnesty have been calling for and is so important. The investigations are also, I think, timely because 
they're happening within this larger context of elections in Ethiopia that are now scheduled for later in June and are important for Ethiopia's trajectory itself. But going back to Eritrea, I think that there's got to be a much more sustained focus on the country and the conditions that Ida outlined. It's basically a dictatorship. It is not probably an overstatement to call it a big gulag in terms of how it uses its youth, how it treats dissent, and how it works to consolidate power around this one figure. That has to be addressed head on. And I don't think that the international community has figured out how to do that yet, but it's got to be a broader coalition, which I think fits in with the Biden administration's approach to global affairs. It's got to probably include much stiffer pressure on other countries that are supporting the Eritrean governments. And it's also, of course, got to get full and unrestricted access, not only for the humanitarian side that Ida mentioned, but for the eyes and ears, the media, the independent human rights organizations, the things that um, are going to document just how bad things are in Tigray and what the Eritreans are involved in. Ida, do you want to add anything? Yeah, just to say, I mean, I fully agree with what Anote has just outlined, and we really welcomed the recent U.S. visa restrictions and the other restrictions on economic and security assistance. And for that to really have the biggest impact, we hope to see the European Union and other states following really quickly and showing, you know, a united front and sending a very clear message to top officials commanding these abusive operations that there are personal and real consequences for their actions. And we also, you know, on the accountability front, we hope there isn't going to be sort of a watered down investigation. And I think also critical is to keep up the pressure on the Ethiopian government to ensure that the communication lines remain open and that we don't continue seeing these cuts of phone and inner access for weeks at a time, ensuring that journalists, human rights organizations have access or able to do their work without being arrested or being thrown out of the country. And we really need to see a continued push for all parties to ensure unhindered humanitarian access. And we'd also like to see more oversight and monitoring of the humanitarian relief and distribution, which is especially important given the reports of severe malnutrition and how different parties to the conflict are restricting aid access to certain communities. Those are really important prescriptions. Thank you. I want to move to Rwanda now. We're going to focus on Rwanda for the next two sections. First, I want to talk about some of the disturbing moves against government opponents. And then we'll broaden out the conversation to talk about why the international community turns a blind eye to the misdeeds of and the authoritarian rule in certain East and Central African countries. So why don't we start first with the arrest of Paul Rusesa Bagina, who most listeners may know from the movie Hotel Rwanda. And on August 27, 2020, Rusesa Bagina was essentially tricked into traveling back to the region where he was put into Rwandan custody and jailed for terrorism-related charges. Rwandan prosecutors have charged him with 13 terror-related offenses including financing terrorists, complicity in murder, and forming a rebel group. Paul has maintained his innocence. The understanding has always been that these allegations against Paul are linked to his criticism of the regime that's in power in Rwanda. Ida Human Rights Watch has called this a forced disappearance. So what happened and why is this arrest significant? 
So as you mentioned, Paul Recesa Bagina, he's best known as being the manager of the Hotel Nilcolin, which is a luxury hotel in central Kigali, where hundreds of people sought protection during the genocide in Rwanda in 1994. And then after the genocide, he fled Rwanda, fearing for his safety, and he soon became a fierce critic of the government, and he co-founded an opposition movement while based abroad. And then in August last year, he traveled from the U.S. to Dubai, and he thought that he would then head on to Burundi to address church congregations. But family members told us that they exchanged WhatsApp messages with him that evening of August 27th while he was in transit in Dubai, but then they weren't able to contact him again. And they knew nothing of what happened to him until the Rwanda Investigation Bureau announced that it had Rusesa Bakina in custody in Kigali on August 31st. So this made him a victim of a forced disappearance for these three days while he was in the custody of Rwandan officials or their proxies. And Rusesa Bagina later said that during this period, he wasn't aware of where he was and he was kept blindfolded with his hands and feet bound. And his family members weren't able to speak with him until September 8th. He was then charged with terrorism offenses and his trial is ongoing. And soon after the trial began this February, a video call between Rwanda's justice minister and two British PR consultants that was apparently shared by accident with Al Jazeera, which is how we know about it. In this call, it basically confirmed what most of us already knew, that there's really little chance of Rusesa Bagina getting a fair trial in Rwanda. And in the call, the justice minister admitted the government's role in his enforced disappearance, his illegal transfer from Dubai to Kigali. Uh, he admitted that the government paid for the flight that brought him there, and also he admitted clear fair trial rights violations, including that the authorities had intercepted privileged communications between Rusesa Bagina and his lawyers. And now, more recently, Rusesa Bagina's family has filed a complaint with a UN special rapporteur on torture, and we're really very concerned about the allegations they've reported of serious ill treatment and also of privileged documents being searched. So, you know, why is this important? You know, I think. Unfortunately, in many ways, Rusesa Begina's case is not unusual. It fits within and is really emblematic of the broader patterns that we have and continue to document regarding anyone who's perceived to be a critic of the Rwandan government. Rusesa Begina is, is one of the latest examples of, of those being targeted. Adate, Rwandan President Paul Kagame has said, I don't know why people are making a lot of noise. He's in a court of law. He's not being hidden somewhere. Now, Ida has said that it's almost sure that he's not going to get a fair trial. I wonder, you know, what does Amnesty think? Is there even a possibility that he could get a fair trial in Rwanda at this point? Absolutely not. Um, we agree with Human Rights Watch's assessment. The question of independence of the judiciary in Rwanda, I think, is fairly obvious that it is under incredible pressure and influence from the executive branch and from Kagame's office if not from him himself. It is a very efficient, autocratic, repressive state that he runs. And so its ability to withstand his wishes, I think, is questionable. One of the few cases where we saw some independence was, of course, with the case of Dan Reguara, 
who was a would-be presidential aspirant. She was subjected to not only a public shaming campaign by the Rwandan government and by allies of the government, but then she was, of course, arrested on very dubious charges. And she and her mother ended up spending almost uh, over a year in jail. In that case, the facts were so flimsy that the, the Rwandan courts did eventually free her. But her case was not unique. The courts have been used to crush independent voices, to silence dissent. And so the chances of him receiving a fair trial are extremely low, and the situation is very alarming. And I think that it fits also, of course, with the credible links that the Rwandan government has with targeting opposition officials in other countries. You may We all know about the cases in South Africa where members of the former government that had a falling out with Kagame and fled into exile um, ended up being dead under questionable circumstances. So Kigali has basically managed to very effectively establish this mantle of fear and intimidation. And uh, Recesa Bagina was one of the few figures, I think, that seemed to have the global stature and the profile to stand up to him. And yet here he is in a Rwandan court in the bowels of the machine, so to speak. And I think that that is why there's such a global mobilization around the case. Michaela, Ida and Adate set you up very nicely, right? Uh, Rasissa Begina's arrest, not unusual, as Ida said, part of an established pattern. Adate referenced the attacks on and death of former RPF dissidents in South Africa, which is the main story in your book, Do Not Disturb. You talk about the murder of former Rwandan intelligence chief, Patrick Karagaya, It'd be great, I think, at this point to hear a little bit why Karagaya was the story in your mind to shine a light on RPF brutality against its civilians and, you know, very close insiders. Is there a through line in your mind between Karagaya's murder and uh, the Recessa Bagina's case? Well, yes, because uh, the common theme is um, no challenge will ever be tolerated. No dissent will ever be allowed. That's the message that comes out from uh, Paul Kagame from the presidency. I became very intrigued when I heard uh, through friends that Patrick Karagaya had been murdered in South Africa. He was not only the head of um, external intelligence in Rwanda, he was also the man who used to deal with the press. He had an incredible network of contacts across Africa and in the West as a result because he was a very ebullient, very friendly guy. And he was one of Kagame's closest friends and most trusted advisors. And so when he himself fell out with the regime and then ended up being um, detained and then jailed and serving a prison term for insubordination and then finally fleeing the country, going to South Africa where he set up an opposition party and started denouncing Kagame's regime as a dictatorship and saying the system that we have set up, you know, that the party that I championed has set up is actually just as bad as the one it replaced. That was a pretty astonishing thing to say, given the sort of attitude most of us feel towards juvenile Habyarimana, Kagame's predecessor, and the genocidal regime he established. I think what you're seeing in both Eritrean and Rwanda is you're, you're seeing revolutionary movements that have taken power, promising democracy, ethnic reconciliation, human rights, free press, opposition, you know, drafting wonderful new constitutions. And then when reality begins to hit home and they realize that they rather like being in power and staying there, the regime begins to change. And then people within that system 
stand up to the big man and say, well, this isn't what we signed up for. This isn't what we believed in. And the same thing has happened in Eritrea with the arrests of the G15, who were his closest allies within the EPLF and who haven't been since, since they were jailed in 2001. So you see Patrick Karagaya, General Kayumba Nyamwasa, the former head of the armed forces, and uh, the former presidential counsellor, uh, advisor, Theogen Rudasingwa, the former solicitor general, Gerald Gahima, all of them forming this opposition party called the Rwanda National Congress, and then being targeted and incredible lengths being taken by Rwandan intelligence to track them down abroad and kill them. So they succeeded with Patrick Karagaya, with Kayumba Nyamwasa, the general in South Africa. He's had about four or five attempts on his life. So Rwanda has inserted itself in a small group of states that um, practice what Freedom House calls transnational repression and that basically regard national boundaries as being no problem at all, we're just going to hunt down our enemies wherever they happen to be. And Rusa Sabagina falls into that pattern. He isn't an active danger to the regime, so he's still alive. Well, let's broaden the conversation out for the episode's last section. Because, Michaela, your book, you tackle a number of aspects about the RPF's founding, about the story of post-genocide Rwanda, but the part that resonated with me and I assume many of our listeners who focus on policy is the myth-making project of the Kagame regime and how that has warped the international narrative about Rwanda. I mean, what happened to Karagaya and others, the destabilizing role of the Rwandans in Eastern Congo, that's well known to everyone. These aren't new stories that you unearthed. I know that the, one of the first books that I read, uh, Howard French's book, taking on the continent, I thought it was wrong. I mean, I didn't know anything I was like in college, but I was like, no, no, this doesn't comport with what I understand about Rwanda, what I have been taught. And so I really love you to sort of expand on this dynamic, how this myth-making, these narratives that particularly Rwanda, but we can also talk about other governments in the region use to deflect criticism and to cultivate supporters globally. Yes, I'm glad you admit to having had that cognitive moment. Because um, I went through the same thing, and I think an awful lot of journalists who covered Rwanda did. And I tend to feel it's a natural reaction to the genocide, because anyone who had covered the genocide or, or sort of worked in Rwanda soon after or interacted with it, it was so horrific what you saw. And so the natural reaction was when there was this very disciplined, straight-talking, focused guerrilla movement coming in and, and basically putting an end to all of that and sending that army and those extremists into permanent exile from the country. The natural tendency was to think, thank God. you know. And they were talking all the talk of ethnic reconciliation and reconstruction, and the West just wanted to help. And it had this tremendous feeling of guilt Rightly so, because during the genocide, you know, instead of the UN immediately sending in reinforcements, some of its members pulled out their peacekeepers and left the Rwandans to it. There was a, a tendency to then overcompensate and try and make up for that by piling on the help, flooding the place with aid. Certainly all the NGOs rushed in to help because there was sort of huge problems with refugees and there was a huge amount of reconstruction to be done. And so I think it took a very long time for people to begin to think, well, OK, um, maybe this isn't quite such a simple picture. One of the things that I'm very aware of now is how difficult it was to research things at that time. And, you know, it wasn't like you could just Google and find out what was going on in Rwanda before the genocide exploded. I mean, we now know that the RPF had an awful lot of blood on its hands by the time it seized 
control of Kigali. And a lot of the context which explained why there was this incredibly toxic relationship between the Hutu community and these Tutsi rebels coming in, that was absent from most people's minds. And that would apply to diplomats as well as journalists and aid workers. And I think, you know, then the doubts began to set in as we saw the ruthlessness with which the RPF broke up the camps of Hutu refugees that had been established in neighbouring Congo. And then we begin to see the way in which a multi-ethnic government of transition becomes more and more sort of, of a, basically a Tutsi-controlled government and how people who had stood up to Kagame to denounce killings by the RPF were simply assassinated. And I think people were so stuck in that mind frame of, you no, know, these people are, are the ones who ended the genocide, they ended the violence, that they really didn't want to look at those more unappetizing elements. And then what you see as the years go by is the development miracle story starting up. And the development miracle story, you know, is not untrue. Um, Rwanda, everyone knows who visits it, is very impressive. It's very neat, very tidy, the roads are in incredible condition, figures for maternal survival rates and uh, primary school attendance and vaccinations are very, very impressive. But I think the story then became that a lot of people who were just focusing on the sustainable development goals began to sort of feel that things like the fact that there was no free press, the opposition really didn't exist, that anyone who stood up to the regime was either harassed or arrested or intimidated or simply disappeared. Those worrying signs got downplayed because everyone was saying, but this is an African model for development. If the human rights thing isn't that impressive, well, maybe a country emerging from a genocide, you really can't expect them to be like Denmark. And um, I think that has continued to be the narrative and maybe is only now undergoing a wobble because the evidence of really worrying human rights abuses has just become so impossible to ignore. Ida, I'd like you to kind of add to this conversation because it's not just happening in Rwanda or it's also been true or had been true of Uganda under President Yoweri Museveni. And we talked earlier about Prime Minister Mellis in Ethiopia, but a similar sort of dynamic is there. Why are foreign governments consistently turning a blind eye to these regimes? Adding to what Michaela said, and I think in the Rwanda context, it began with this deep sense of guilt for not having intervened to stop the genocide, and then a kind of strong desire to want to see and believe a good news story and support a hero. And then there's the idea of the development miracle that Michaela mentioned. And many donors and foreign partners have just minimized the human rights abuses given the country's extraordinary economic growth. And I think what we've documented in the transit centers in Kigali is a good example of the methods that the authorities are using to try to maintain this pristine image. And there, you know, authorities have rounded up thousands of street children, street vendors, homeless people, and then they're detained in this transit center, Gakundo, and they're held in filthy, overcrowded conditions. Many are beaten, and they've been told explicitly that they're, they're detained because they make the streets dirty and they make Rwanda look bad. We also have, you know, people explicitly being told not to talk to foreigners Creating a hostile image of Rwanda abroad is now a criminal offense. People who dare criticize or speak out about the government have been arrested and put on trial on the basis of this. And so these just shows the tactics that they're using to try to curate the image that they want outsiders to see. And I think the one time we've seen 
real pressure on Rwanda in recent years was during the abusive M23 rebellion in eastern Congo. And there, the international community responded. The U.S. and several European countries deployed intense diplomatic pressure and they suspended aid. And that led Rwanda to pretty much immediately withdraw its support and the rebel movement crumbled. So I think this shows that Rwanda is absolutely susceptible to international pressure, but it depends on where the international partners draw their red lines. So blatantly backing an abusive rebellion in eastern Congo was a line too far, but what about when they disappear and kill critics? And so far, the message from the international community has been that they can get away with it. Now, we've seen in Uganda and Ethiopia a similar just sort of unwillingness to look at what's happening inside the country in terms of human rights abuses. In the case of Uganda, again, wanting to believe that Nomuseveni was the liberator and then became a critical partner on security and the fight against the LRA and al-Shabaab and an unwillingness to really pay attention to the increasingly abusive, repressive tactics, which many people woke up to this with the elections earlier this year, which were highly violent and abusive, but the warning signs were there for many years. In Ethiopia, I would say that what we're seeing today with the war in Tigray is in part a direct consequence of the international community's focus for years on development assistance and cooperation, very much at the cost of human rights and accountability. And we saw under Meles how development assistance was actually contributing to human rights abuses, including through the villagization program and the use of development assistance for political purposes. And then when Prime Minister Abiy came to power, it seemed that everyone really wanted to give him the benefit of the doubt. He got the Nobel Peace Prize. Many diplomats were clearly withholding criticism or pressure and saying he needed to be given time and space. And this was despite the increasingly worrying signs of repression, tensions, and conflict escalating across much of the country that we and others were documenting. And it was essentially a pressure cooker. And I think if the international community had paid more attention to the underlying causes of violence and tensions in the country, the long-term sense of grievance and impunity, it's possible that the steam could have been let off over the years instead of leading to the explosion that we're seeing today. There's such a false assumption, right, Ida, this sort of let's give them time and space, this sort of unabashed endorsement, and we will paper over any of the problems because it comes home to roost. But here's the question, Adote, journalists like Michaela, like your organization, Amnesty, Ida's organization, Human Rights Watch, think tanks like mine, we write about these things all the time. It's not that we have sort of hid them under the bed. And it's taking a very long time to change the way in which governments engage with actors that have very bad human rights record. Uh, is there a better way to sort of accelerate this process of seeing what is happening on the ground and acting appropriately? Well, the groups that you've referenced will continue to be irritating, annoying, and challenging to policymakers for constantly saying, hold on a second, this is troubling, or you have an obligation to basically challenge this and to condemn a certain policy or an action. I think that our challenge is something that both Michaela and Ida have gone into detail in, which is basically the problem of national interest and utility. These regimes and the relationships that support them that are 
continue to be believed by donor governments are based on the utility that A, these people are an improvement on what was there before, or that they are quote unquote efficient in their use of foreign assistance, or that they are effective in a larger agenda or strategy. For example, the three countries that we've been talking about the most, Ethiopia, Uganda, and Rwanda, are all strong allies in the war on terror. And Judd, you and I have been on hearings where we basically said that larger agenda is eroding not only rights, but security and creating some of these problems that we're seeing right now, or it's facilitating them to continue. We have to figure out how to create the support and the space for our peers in these countries to survive and to operate. I know all of us have been in discussions where when we've raised concerns about a certain practice, We've basically been shut down as saying, you guys are from the West, you're imperialist, you're bringing in an agenda that doesn't understand our situation. And the response is, excuse me, but there are people in your countries that are calling for the same things. There are students that are trying to do demonstrations in Uganda about democracy and fair elections and rights. Why is the presidential candidate for the opposition still under house arrest? It boggles the mind. And yet there's no large kind of mobilization of diplomatic pressure to get that addressed in Uganda, for example. So the discussion of closing civic space, I think, has been one that the rights community and journalists like Michaela have been talking about. And you're beginning to see it register as a bigger problem here in Washington, but you're not seeing it reach the levels where there's going to be effective policy change or at least not yet. And maybe the Biden administration is going to be a little bit different. But even if it is, is it going to be a foreign policy priority that is going to force the U.S. partners and other donors to the continent to also rethink how important it is for this business of openness, dissent, messiness, argument, but within rules that are respectful, that do not allow people to be eliminated? In other words, how do you get the act of democratic governance and just and debate to be allowed to grow, to strengthen. And as long as we continue to allow these donor countries and influential countries to continue to say, we're, we're going after the strong, the military usually, and these partners who we quote unquote can trust to keep order and be of utility to us, then we're never going to get the responses that these countries deserve and have a right to and that we all need if we're going to see stability and sustainable economic growth. Well, that's exactly where I want to wrap up the episode. And I'll give Michaela the final question, because, you know, as you reflect on Karagaya's life and, you know, his untimely death in a hotel room in South Africa, what are the lessons for policymakers about engaging with what are donor darlings or misappropriately uh, labeled donor darlings. And then if the Biden administration, as Adotea said, is focused on democracy and human rights, what does that mean in practice when it comes to confronting countries like Rwanda in terms of what it does to its citizens, what it does in the broader region? You know, what are your recommendations on the way forward? Yeah, thanks. I mean, I agree with everything Adotea just said. I think one of the key things is we've got to stop distancing Western policy in Africa on the development front from Western policy in Africa from the foreign front. You have to have a linked up policy and you can't keep having this argument where, yes, it's a dictatorship, but they do deliver well on vaccinations. They may deliver well on vaccinations, but as Adote was saying, they're not delivering well on a host of other concerns of their citizens that really matter rather a lot to those people. 
we've got to sort of be very grateful that the Biden administration has come in and made it very, very clear that it minds about these things. Its statements on Ethiopia and, and the war in Tigray have been incredibly refreshing. I mean, you know, we've got to remember that under Trump, there was just this sort of the slurring comment that he made about African countries. And, and that was it. And the message that went out was, we really don't care. I mean, as long as it doesn't affect our own strategic interests, the US isn't bothered about any human rights issues in, in Africa. When it comes to Rwanda, Kagame was not included in that uh, recent climate conference that, that was staged in April. Rwanda was also not included in Blinken's first virtual tour of Africa. I think they're getting the message. There's also been some robust statements made about human rights uh, during the UN Human Universal Peer Review Mechanism in Geneva back in February. And, you know, hopefully more and more countries will just stop making dumb gestures. Uh, it was dumb to agree to stage the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting in Kigali. That was a ridiculous thing to do. And uh, it's now been postponed. And I hope that that will be reconsidered before a new date is set. Um, it was really dumb to give the Nobel Prize win to Abby. I mean, what were they thinking of? The man had only been in position for a very short period of mine, and no one had the faintest idea what it was going to be like under his rules. So don't make stupid gestures would be my first recommendation. But, you know, as far as Rwanda is concerned, if you have a high commission that has clearly been involved in intimidating members of the diaspora in your country and possibly even organising for agents from Rwanda to go out and try and bump them off, I think that high commission should be closed and its diplomats sent packing and official apologies should be demanded. Those are the kind of things we expect of Saudi Arabia or Russia or Turkey or Belarus. Look at the fuss that's being made now about the renditioning of this uh, uh, journalism in Belarus. I mean, so, you know, why should it be one rule for Belarus and, and another for Rwanda? We should hold uh, Kagame to even higher standards than that. Well, that's all the time that we have for today's podcast. Let me thank my guests and uh, we'll see everyone in two weeks. Thanks. Thanks for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends, subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts or wherever you find good content. You can also check out our analysis and reports at csis.org slash Africa. Thanks. <laughs>